We are continuing tonight uh, in Matthew chapter 24. Last week, we covered the first half of chapter 24. And I'll tell you, my opinion is, that is probably the toughest passage in all of the book of Matthew. Toughest to understand. We wrestled with it. Some of you walked out completely puzzled. Some of you just gave up and said, I don't even know what it means. And so because we're continuing the second half of chapter 24 today, I'm going to try briefly to recapture the first half one more time because they're connected. Last week, Jeremy accurately said that you could take chapter 24 out. It's kind of a genre all by itself. That's true. It seems to be written in a very apocalyptic way. But I'm going to show you that even Jesus, when he spoke some of these words, he was differentiating himself from other apocalyptics of his time. But let's go back for a second. I'm going to tell you that what you see on the screen is a paraphrase. I want to be clear. This is not a quote. I've actually tried to paraphrase using some of the quotes. I actually cut up the language a little bit, moved some things around to try to make sense of it. If it was ordered differently, maybe we'd understand it. And then I'm going to show it to you visually because last week was tough. Here's what I hear in my interpretation Jesus saying to his disciples. They ask him, when will the destruction of the temple happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? They're connecting the two. The destruction of the temple and the end of the age. Jesus answered first about his coming. Don't be deceived. You'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There'll be famines and earthquakes. You'll be handed to be persecuted and put to death. You'll be hated by all nations because of me. Many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. But these are not signs of the end. Why is Jesus making that clear? I hear a lot of authors, they say Jesus was just one of those Jewish apocalyptic guys. You know, he just really believed this was the end. Actually, what he's doing here is he's differentiating himself. It was common at this time to think these were the signs of the end, and Jesus is actually saying, no, you're not signs of the end. I know what you're hearing out there. I know there's a whole apocalyptic movement saying that these are the signs. No, these are not the signs. These are going to happen, but they're not the signs. Then Jesus responded to their question about the temple. He kind of reversed the order. When you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken through the prophet Daniel, let those who are in Judea flee the mountains. He's giving them a warning. Don't even go back to the house to take anything. Don't go back for your cloak. These days will be dreadful for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or in the Sabbath. And then... At some future time after the destruction of the temple, there will be great distress. Unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again, people will say, look, here is the Christ, or there he is. Don't believe it. The Son of Man will be appearing in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. He will send his angels, and they will gather his elect from one end of the earth, or of the heavens, to the other. I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all the things that have to happen before the end can come have taken place. And then parenthetically, these things are going to happen before the temple is destroyed. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now, I'm also going to say it one more time. I chopped up words and moved some things around and paraphrased some things to get to this. Because as I read over and over these passages that we had trouble with last week and looked at all the ways people tried to harmonize them and criticize them and even come back to a way that might make sense, 
this is the way that I think it works the best. Let me show you everything I just paraphrased on a linear timeline. It seems like what Jesus is saying is he's having a conversation with the disciples way over here on the timeline where they are saying, when is the destruction of the temple at the end going to come? Jesus is responding in his words saying, these are two separate events. Don't confuse them. Many are going to point to signs, but these are not signs of the end. And those signs down there are the wars, the rumors of wars, and the persecution, the earthquakes, the famine. Those things are going to come, but those aren't the signs of the end. They will come, and then the temple will be destroyed. When you see the abomination, the temple will be destroyed. He's actually saying, I know when it's going to happen. When you see this sign, the temple will be destroyed. So it's very important that Jesus says, I know when the temple's going to be destroyed. And I'll come back to why that's so important in a moment. But at some point later, after the temple is destroyed, the Son of Man will come in the clouds. This generation will not pass away until these things happen. That was the phrase that really tied us up last week. Because it comes at the end chronologically in the way the verses are arranged by Matthew. But I'm going to tell you that my belief, after reading everything, is that these things refers to those things over there. Everything leading up to the destruction. When he's saying that these things will happen during your lifetime, he's talking about those things right there. Not both. Remember, the disciples were trying to talk about both. The destruction and the Son of Man coming back. And he's saying, let's deal with them separately. And I will tell you also, in fairness, that there's people who say, no, He's talking about both, but if you take that view, you're going to have to conclude that Jesus just didn't know, which we're going to talk about tonight also. But I believe the better view in my mind is that he's talking about those things. And the reason he's talking about those things is because he's going to make this statement next. We start in chapter 24, continue tonight in verse 36. No one knows about that day or hour. Well, he just finished saying, I know when these things are going to happen. I know when they're going to happen. They're right there. So how could the next words out of his mouth going, but I don't know when that day will happen? He's talking about two different things. These things being everything to the destruction of the temple. And what we're going to talk about tonight is that day being the day that the Son of Man returns. Philip. It's a really minor side note that is just curious. Like, did the destruction of the temple happen in winter? Or? <laughs> That's a great question. I don't know. <laughs> Who just studied the destruction of the temple? Was it Abby? Were you just studying the destruction of the temple? Do you know if it happened in winter or summer? Uh, yeah. yeah, I don't, there was a point where I, there was a recorded event where people fled. What was interesting about it is they didn't flee to the mountains the way he told them to. They fled somewhere else. But that's just a historical point. Yes. Uh, what do you say to people who argue that what Jesus is talking about at the beginning of the chapter has not even happened yet, that the temple has yet to be rebuilt, and then one, once it's rebuilt, then the abomination will come, and then all this stuff will happen. Okay, <laughs> that's going to take us a little bit of field, but I'll, I'll give you this short answer. Most people who have looked at the passage carefully don't feel that that's anywhere in the passage. I know there are churches today that read that into it. In fact, there's churches that read all these things right here, the wars and rumors of wars, and they're looking for those signs. The thing that makes that so ironic is Jesus is clearly saying those are not the signs. And yet there are whole churches that are reading, looking for those signs, because they think then the temple will be rebuilt. That's why they're so into like, you know, giving money to Israel to try to rebuild the temple. And then it will be destroyed by the Antichrist. And then all this stuff will come. But you know what? I don't really believe that interpretation is supported by this text at all. 
I mean, I know there's people who teach that, but I don't think it's supported. Not from any of the people that I've been able to read that have said that, okay? But I'll talk to you more about it if you want. All right. He knows when these things are going to happen. And the verse we're about to go into says, but I don't know when that's going to happen. And that's why I believe he's talking about two separate things, and that's why I believe he's trying to separate them. Those things will happen, he knows when, before this generation is done. But those things, he doesn't know. Let's start in verse 36. We did something different this week. We actually, in our Wednesday night groups, gave you these passages and you looked at them in advance. Uh, I probably should have done that last week, (laughs) instead of having that really, really tough part on the screen. So... I'd love to hear your comments. You've already wrestled through this. I'm going to comment on them and then move on. Here's the verses. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Wow, you know, you've got to stop there for that moment and think, that's a very powerful statement. I know some of you wrestled with it in your groups. What does it mean that the Son doesn't even know when that day or hour comes? Let's look at the words day or hour, by the way. It doesn't mean like exactly what day. I mean, that's, one, that's actually included in it. But some people have said, well, we might not know the exact day, but we'll certainly know the kind of the, the years. That's, that's not there either. When he's talking about that day or hour, he's referring to it in the way of like the day of judgment, the day of our Lord. He's referring to that Old Testament concept of when the day of the Lord comes. That day or hour, not even the angels in heaven nor the sun knows. All right, how is it that the Son doesn't know? How is that possible? What about our concept of Trinity and and that the Son, the Father, the Holy Spirit together are one? How is it possible that this is kept from the Son? Aren't they one? Yeah. Well, Paul talks about the Son being, um, or willfully humbling himself, like putting himself within um, humanity. And so it, it's not like he couldn't know, but that he chooses not to. He's put himself, God has put himself into the limits of humanity. You're referring to who finding equality with God, not something to be taken advantage of, like then humbly, you know, basically takes on the role of a servant to do these things. All right. So he's, he's voluntarily doing that. And also, if you look at this, Let's think logically for a moment. I mean, Jesus in bodily form, God is omnipresent, he's everywhere. Jesus in bodily form can't be omnipresent, right? We don't have any indication in scripture of that, that he's at all places at all times. So there seems to be at least some limitations that come in the incarnation, if it's not in all time, like nothing in this, it's hard. Some people look at this and say, yes, the son while he's on earth cannot know these things. Some people say, no, the son voluntarily, like you said, chooses to allow the Father to dictate these things and to not know these things. And they are distinct personalities and they have that relationship still. Just like the Son chooses to glorify the Father. And those kinds of concepts, they go on in eternity. Either way, I want to point out that it's not difficult for us to imagine that, yeah, he gave up his omnipresence when he comes to earth in bodily form. Maybe he gave up some of his omnipotence. We see in places in scripture that he may not be, maybe there's some limitations. There's a couple clues to that. Maybe here it's saying that he's also not all-knowing while he's in his bodily form or chooses not to know. But that's a difficult thing, and it shows that we at least got to look at how that works. Do you have a comment, Ray? I was thinking about it, and just like something that came up, um, maybe the sun here is limited 
um, while he's on earth in knowing because, I mean, Jesus still prayed to God. It's not like they had some weird telepathic connection going on, and that could be maybe because Jesus humbled himself, or for whatever reason, Jesus still prayed, which seems to be like a further indication, at least to me, that maybe there was some sort of limitation on his omnipresence, but that's scary, because how do you rely on anything he says then if you didn't know everything when he was here? Okay. There seems to be some relationship between the triunity of God where they have decided voluntarily amongst themselves and in unity at the same time that they will play different roles. Like Jesus says, the Spirit, when he comes, will testify about me. They've already worked this out. He already knows what the Spirit is going to do. He's going to testify back about the Son. That's the role of the Spirit. I'll tell you that most of the debate on this centers usually on, is it temporal, like while he's on earth? Or is it eternal that he doesn't know? Um, but one thing that I always point out, as you've heard me say, if Jesus on earth doesn't know, it's curious that so many churches are trying to figure it out. That's always the, the weird part to me. Comment? Yeah, theologically there are some traditions too which will talk about the eminence and the imminence of, of the Trinity. So the life of the Trinity as it relates to the its eternal, internal, presence which is unknowable to us and the life of the trinity as it relates to its action in the world which is something that we see a glimpse of so it's you know one thing to say i mean in other words it could be or it should be internally consistent within itself but how that actually looks or being able to express that would just not be possible but we see the activity of the divinity, the, tr the trinity in the world. And so we do our best to model that. So we say things like fully divine and fully human, or we say things like uh, one but distinct, realizing that the paradox is ultimately just that. And I will say that's a very good point for us to make, that we're treading on ground that doesn't really belong to us to declare in any way, um, other than to read the text that's been given and to kind of give us a clue as to how this is how the Father wants to be known or how the Spirit has made him known through this statement in Scripture. All right, let's keep going. I guess the one thing I would say as an application is we should just go to the Christian bookstore and round up all the authors and keep making the predictions, right? Bring them in and go, hey, we know the standard for a false prophet. Let's get going, you know? I don't, like, I, so many books have been written, and to my knowledge, like no accountability for all the people who keep date setting, right? All right, now he gives the important part that he's driving to. He's going to go through a number of examples saying, I don't know the day or hour, but why am I telling you that? He says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day that Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them away. This is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day the Lord will come. Jesus is trying to give us a very strong indication of what we're supposed to be doing. Keeping watch. That's going to be the theme of the next few parables that he's going to tell. Keeping watch. Because you do not know. It makes sense now why he's saying, I don't know. 
Some people have said maybe that's an exaggeration. I'm going to take it at its word right now because it doesn't matter so much. What he's saying is if I don't know, you need to keep watch because you don't know. Keep watch. That's the point. What's the allusion to Noah here? You guys covered this. What's he talking about? Why talk about the days of Noah? What's so significant about that? I mean, he makes the example pretty clear. Yeah. Because God told Noah only that the flood was coming, and nobody else knew, and then everybody else was gone right when the flood started coming. I don't know about the nobody else knew. What do you think? The, the, at least the people around Noah had to have known because he's building a freaking like city boat. <laughs> but, um, so they had to have known in some way, but, but they ignored it and they partied up and they lived their own lives, whatever. They called him a fool. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if his own sons might have called him a fool at, at some point, but they all knew that something was happening. They just chose to not live as if it was coming. Yeah, have you ever thought about why God asked Noah to build a boat? I personally, you've heard my bias in the past, do not believe in a global earthwide flood. I believe it was a flood of the area where everybody lived and everybody died. That's my personal belief. But that even puts the question to me even more. If that's the case, why didn't God just tell Noah to move? Go to another county. Go to another plane. Go to another continent. Why do you have to build the boat? But even if you don't believe that, even if you believe in that it covered every inch of the entire planet... Why build a boat? Why can't God just make more people, make more animals? Why does he make this person build a boat? And I think if you really look at the purpose that God is trying to accomplish here, is he's giving people a warning. He's giving people a visible sign. He appoints Noah as a prophet. Tell the people what's going on. I mean, like you said, you couldn't miss it if there's this story spreading around the land that this guy is building this enormous boat in the middle of a desert. Because God is trying to tell people that this is what's going to happen. That's why Jesus uses the example. In fact, Jesus picks that example because it supports his point so well. It's just going to be like that. There's going to be signs around you. Remember, he's talked about signs and the fig tree and all this stuff and all the signs. He's just like, there's going to be stuff pointing. But everybody's just going to go about their life. You said they were partying it up. Yes, he uses marriage and all that stuff. But, you know, mostly this concept of giving and marrying and giving in marriage is not really a party metaphor. It's more a life-goes-on metaphor. People, life goes on. They just do what they're supposed to do. They just move on. They, they, you know, people who think the end of the world is tomorrow don't get married. Or they're not worried about having all this stuff going on. They're thinking it's the end of the world tomorrow, Right? But he's saying, no, they're going on with life the way it's supposed to. Generation after generation is marrying and giving in marriage, and they're just continuing on because they don't think anything's going to change. And then they're taken away, and they don't even expect it. And then he says, that's how it's going to be at the coming of the Son of Man. There's going to be these two people, and one's going to be taken away, and there's two women grinding, and one's going to be taken away. And then there's, of course, more debate among people. What do you mean taken away? Is that the rapture? What's going on there? You know, is that what's happening? And I'll tell you that even scholars that kind of agree with each other at every point have disagreed on this one. One person said, if you see here that the flood took them away, when the person is taken away in the next part, that means they're taking a judgment. The one who's left behind is the one who's doing good. The one who's taken means he's taking a judgment. I was surprised because this, this scholar that I was reading doesn't really go that way normally. The other one said, no, 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 I totally disagree. The one who's taken, that is the rapture. All right. They're both very well-respected people, but they disagree on what it means. I don't know that we have to resolve it. 
One way or another, he's saying, it's going to come upon you when you least expect it. And one of you is going to be taken. Is it good to be left behind or good to go? I don't know. It just means keep watch. The central theme is keep watch. Jesus is going to tell three parables about keeping watch. A parable where the return is unexpected. A parable where the return is earlier than expected. And a parable when the return is later than expected. He's covering all his bases. He's saying whenever it comes, because I do not even know the day or hour. Whenever it comes, you better keep watch. Let's look at the one where the return is unexpected. It's a very, very short parable. Understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. Keeping watch. That's the theme. So you also must be ready. Because the Son of Man will come at an hour you do not expect him. Keep watch. Unexpected. You should by now be formulating this question in your head. Like, like, what exactly does it mean to keep watch? Am I staying up all night waiting for Jesus? Like, that'd be a long night. Am I just supposed to suspend my life because he could come back at any moment? I mean, just think of all the lives that would have been suspended all these years that have transpired. Remember, in our visual timeline, what Jesus seems to be saying is, that day is going to come sometime after the temple's been destroyed. It's been a long time since the temple's been destroyed, if you follow that interpretation. We're getting close to 2,000 years. But he's saying it could come at any time. I'm not saying it will come immediately. I'm saying it could come at any time. You need to live and keep watch. All right, what does that mean? Here's one where it says the return is earlier than expected. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master puts in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? Listen to that carefully. Which among you is a steward of the Lord who does what the Lord commands? And what is it that the Lord commands in this parable? To give the other servants their food at the proper time. To take care of the master's servants. To take care of the master's people. To feed in this example, but it probably means more. To take care of one another that you've been put in charge of. Who among you is going to be that person? He says, it will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. I tell you the truth, you will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. And he begins to beat the fellow servants and eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And in an hour he is not aware of, he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's a stern warning in this. Why? What's he setting it up with? Same thing. You think the master's taking a long time to come back. You think you're starting to think, maybe the master's never coming back. Maybe some of those people are right that Jesus didn't know what he was talking about. Maybe this isn't going to happen. Or just simply, I've got time. He hadn't come back this long. Why should he come back now? I mean, if I were just going to be a betting person, I'll just bet he's not coming back soon. I'll just continue to live my life, do whatever I want, and ignore the very thing that the master asked me to do to take care of the other people. I just won't do it. Here you see this kind of beating the, the fellow servants and eating and drinking and getting drunk. Exactly the opposite. Rather than taking care of the fellow servants, you beat them, you abuse them. 
Maybe you enslave them. Maybe you just by omission do not help them. And instead of feeding them, you take it all for yourself, which is something we're very guilty of in this country. We're not doing the very thing the master asks us to do. And I think most of us, we've talked about this past, we're all good examples of not doing this area of what the master has asked us to do. And the point is, he comes back earlier than expected. Why earlier? Because this person thought they have plenty of time. We're tempted to do this in our own life. Come on, I'm young. I'm just getting us started. I'm doing stuff, you know. I'll get to it eventually. He's probably not going to come back anyway for a while. I got, I got time. And Jesus is saying, you might not know that he's coming at all, unexpected, the first example. And here he's saying, he might come back earlier than you think. Because if he comes back and he finds out that we're not doing that, these verses always kind of trouble me. He'll cut us into pieces. <laughs> It's a very strong thing. It's said in a parable. I don't know that that's a literal thing at all. But he's going to put us in the same place with the hypocrites. Who are the hypocrites? I know we jumped into Matthew 24, but if you go back to 22 and 23, he's talking about the hypocrites, the Pharisees. He's actually woed the Pharisees at length in the previous passages. And here we are being assigned in the same place. One of Matthew's favorite phrases, a place where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth, certainly a place we don't want to be. He can come back earlier. I want to just tell you, by the way, that Luke has a very parallel, almost verbatim, up until here. But then Luke adds this. The servant who knows his master's will and does not get ready and does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with a few blows. In Luke's version, he adds these extra verses to kind of say punishment even is doled out depending on whether you know or don't know. Harsher punishment is given to those who know and do not do what the master wants. It's better not to know in some way, although you'll still get some punishment. Troubling verses. I'm not really sure how they fit all the time, but it's interesting that those are the verses that precede this thing. From everyone who's been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much will be asked. We've covered those verses a number of times about how much each of us living in privilege has been given. So we are the ones who know, and we are the ones who's been given much. So it seems like the punishment, if it's read in a way from the parable, will be harsher on those who know. Yeah. So you're not saying that just because it's in the parable that, that it's not true, right? Because if I were to push back and say, well, John, the parable of Lazarus and you know, he's in heaven and the master is in hell. So, people, so many people are willing to take that as like, oh yeah, that, that's how heaven and hell is. You know, but why in, that, why in that parable, you know, is that okay? But in this parable that makes us uncomfortable, we don't want to talk about, oh, that's just hyperbole. You know? No, it's a very good question. What I mean to say the cut to pieces is the part that I mean to say, like, I don't know if you literally are cut to pieces because it's, it is part of the, the parable language that, I mean, really what this implies is that when the master comes back, he will torture that person for what they've done. That's actually what the cut to pieces really refers to. So I don't, I don't believe that, that the intent of the parable is to say, let me describe to you the exact punishment you will receive because it is a parable. I do believe that it means that you will be punished in something you really will not like. So the question would be is, you know, what identifies a faithful and wise servant and what identifies a wicked servant? And since... I mean, I guess you could develop like a theological perspective on that. You could say, you know, a, a faithful and wise servant is someone who believes and a wicked servant is someone who doesn't. But 
Now it's put, I guess the problem would be, I guess you could have someone who believes but is still a wicked servant. And the question is, if they're still punished, what does that look like? Yeah, and I would actually say in this particular parable, Jesus is identifying a good servant as someone who does what he asks and a bad servant as someone who does not. This one seems to be about the obedience part of his followers more than just the belief. That being read together with other passages about, I mean, look, there are passages in all four Gospels that emphasize belief. There are passages that emphasize doing. I think when you put them together, they still make sense. This one, in fairness, is not talking about belief directly. It's talking about, I mean, I guess you could say, well, you have to believe in him to obey him. But in this parable, he's saying the difference between the faithful and wise servant and the wicked one is the faithful and wise one does what his master tells him to do. And specifically, he's saying what it is he wants him to do while he's waiting. So when I said earlier, some of us might say, well, keeping watch, what does that mean? What, what am I supposed to do while I'm keeping watch? In this parable, because they follow right after each other, he's kind of describing a little bit of what you're doing while you're waiting for your master. You're doing what he instructed you to do. What if the return is later than expected? Some people think that by the time Matthew was writing his gospel, some time had been passing. It's possible that Matthew wrote his gospel even after the destruction of the temple. And he's still confusing these two together like, okay, it could be any day now, but we're starting to, to, the days are passing. But whatever Matthew was thinking, what about you? Don't you ever sit and wonder and think, gosh, it's been an awfully long time. I know that the Father is the one who knows, but has he forgotten about us? Of course, then we go over and read like a day is a thousand years to the Lord, so he's only on the second day right now. He has, he's just getting around to it. Or maybe we read First Peter when he's talking about the idea that don't think that the Lord is slow as some think that slowness, he's being patient so that none would perish. Maybe that's the verse that we should be doing. We've brought that verse a number of times. But whatever the thing is, Jesus is not directly addressing your angst about when he's coming back. Remember, he's saying even I don't know. Don't worry about that. Your job? Watch. Be aware. Do what I've commanded you to do, even if it's later than you expect. It's like he's covered every base. So we move into chapter 25. We read the parable of the ten virgins. Here's chapter 25. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. There's been a lot of speculation about what is this weird ritual that they're doing? Like, why are they waiting for this guy? And everybody tries to explain it in a slightly different way, but it doesn't even matter. But to give you some, some background, it seems common in Palestinian weddings in the first century that when the bridegroom was coming, people who were close to the family, young women, would wait and light torches to lead him into the household, basically to welcome him in. So now they're waiting and he's not coming. And these were torches that were lit with oil. They weren't lanterns, they were actually torches, but you needed oil wrapped around the rags so that you could light these torches and have enough flame to light the way and lead him in. Some people have looked and said, is it significant that there's five and five? Is it significant that they fell asleep? It seems like they're all in the same boat. They're all waiting. They're all drowsy. They all fell asleep. It seems like those details are not as important as the fact that five of them did what they're supposed to do, which is have enough oil and be prepared for the coming of the bridegroom, and five were not. At midnight, the cry rang out, 
Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish one said to the wise, give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some from yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who already went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later the others also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I do not know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or hour. It's like the bookmarks, the kind of endings. I don't know the day or hour, keep watch, because you don't know the day or hour. It's all connected thematically, keep watch. Now what's going on here with the oil? I mean, some of them... They got oil, but by the time they got there, it was too late. Clearly, the message he's trying to say is if you don't have everything ready, the bridegroom's going to come, yes, later than you might have expected. You all waited, waited, you fell asleep, but at the moment he came, you didn't have what you were supposed to have. You weren't prepared for his coming. Now, it's significant that Jesus describes himself here as the bridegroom. See, we're kind of used to these terms because we've said, yeah, the church is the bride of Christ, and we've made that metaphor, but at this time, that metaphor didn't exist directly. What people were more accustomed to hearing was God being the bridegroom and Israel being the bride. Jesus is identifying himself here in ways that, again, like saying he's going to come on the clouds, are identifying something that most people would say, hey, you're not allowed to say that. You're not God. He's saying, I'm identifying myself with the Father. So why is the bridegroom so mean? So we understand that they let them in. Those people were ready. The five went in. They went into the party. They're part of the wedding banquet. Then the others show up a little bit late. Can you imagine if we locked the door here whenever anybody was late? That'd be great, wouldn't it? It'd be awesome, you know? I went to a church once where the pastor was so mad that people would walk in at all different times that at 9.05, he locked the doors and wouldn't let anybody in until the whole first worship set was over, and then people were doing like this walk of shame. You would see them like this whole <laughs> group of people walking in. Yeah, yeah. He didn't last long because half the elders were out there too doing the walk of shame, you know? <laughs> you know that rule, right? The more comfortable you feel at church, the later you go, right? The only people who go earlier are the visitors, right? You can always tell a visitor because they're reading the bulletin. They're like, they're 10 minutes early, like reading, trying not to talk to anybody, you know? So he found out that most of the people were late, and there was almost nobody in, so he was locking in nobody. Here the bridegroom has locked in the first five. Now, again, I looked at different people who've looked at this. They say, it, it's a little weird that there's this part in the parable that they would lock the doors. That's a little strange. I mean, it was at night, but that he wouldn't let people in that they supposedly know. Remember, these are supposed to be either close family members or people who are close to either the bride or the bridegroom. Jesus is trying to tweak the custom a little bit to make a point. When you read these words, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. We've seen those words before. Then he'll say to those people, I truly, I never knew you. Like, we've seen those words before. Why is he putting those words into the mouth of the bridegroom? Is it that they really, literally doesn't know them? No, it's a way of rejecting people. It was a first century rejection. Like, truly, I, I don't even know you. You know, it would be a way of just dissing that person. Just as much as it would be to just close the door in their face saying, you know, you're not coming in because you're late. 
All right, we could pick the parable part all day and say, I don't really understand, I don't, I don't get it. But the last part is the editorial. He's telling us exactly why he's telling us the parable. He's saying, keep watch, because you don't know the day or hour. The five virgins who didn't have the oil weren't prepared, weren't prepared to do what they were supposed to do. They weren't keeping watch. You could say, well, the others weren't keeping watch. They fell asleep, right, but they fell asleep prepared to do what they were supposed to do. So clearly we know that keeping watch doesn't mean we're going to stay up all day long waiting for him. It just means that we're doing what we're supposed to do. So that even if it comes later and it doesn't, you know, it's not when we exactly expect it, it comes way later than we expected it, we still have everything ready for him in our life. Which brings it back to us, I think. I think a lot of us, including me, I'll be totally honest, we think I'm probably going to see the end of my life before Jesus returns. I mean, if you ask me, you know, from last night's casino tonight, gave me some chips, go like, put it on like, coming back during lifetime or not coming back during lifetime, you know, like, where would I put the bet? I think it makes it all the more important for us because we are like these people in these different parables. Maybe we're not beating people up, but we're certainly not feeding people. Maybe we're not asleep completely, but the idea is maybe we're not prepared that if he did come back, and he's saying, you don't know. You don't know. And I would add, even if he didn't come back, we are going to face the end of our life. And weren't we supposed to be doing the things he wanted us to do anyway? I've looked at these verses in a practical way of my whole life that even if he didn't come back unexpectedly, but even if I met my end unexpectedly on the way home tonight, I still want to have done the things that I was supposed to do in this life. I still want to have done the things that he asked me to do and do them to the most I could have done within the number of years that I have. Whether he comes back tomorrow in the clouds or whether I face him because something happens to me, I want to have done whatever I could. And I know that in my life, and probably in many of ours, we kind of keep pushing some of it down the field because we always live with the idea, I've got more time, there's still some stuff ahead of me, and that's normal. I'm not trying to beat you up for that because I do the same thing. But Jesus is trying to remind us not to do that. To live in expectation of his coming, whether it's because we die and face him or whether he comes first, to live in that expectation at all times and to expend ourselves for others doing what he wanted us to do. What is it that the Lord requires of you? Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly. And we've said it before, feed, clothe, visit, love, preach, teach, heal. All of the things that Jesus modeled for us as if this was the last day. And if he does come back, he finds us doing those things, it would be good for the servant whose master finds him doing those things. And if he comes back and we're not doing any of those things, whether you believe that he's going to chop you up, <laughs> I don't know that that's what I take out of it. But I'll tell you that we ourselves will just be so bummed out that we had wasted so much time in not doing what he wanted us to do. That's what I think is going to be the greatest tragedy. When he says to us, how do you think you did? And your answer is, I know I could have done better. I know I could have done better. Let's pray and close up. Jesus, thank you for the opportunity just to learn from your word. 
Lord, we count on you, Holy Spirit, to illuminate your word, to let it grow inside of us. Just moments from now, Lord, we're going to put all this aside. Just moments from now, Lord, we're going to start to let these words dissipate. And we're going to be doing the very thing that this passage is telling us not to do. We're going to start to lose sight of being constantly ready and being on guard. So right now, Lord, I just pray just for a moment in silence that you would convict us. You would speak to us about being watchful for your imminent return. Lord, may this community take on the responsibility of holding each other accountable to being ready for your return. May we be brave enough to be able to speak words to one another, to constantly remind each other that the day of the Lord is coming. Whether we meet you first or you come, Lord, in the clouds, may we be a community that's known by the fact that we speak of that day often and hold each other to that standard. Pray this in your name. Amen.